Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a Bible devotional, but ideally it's done with groups or at least a couple partners. That way you get accountability and better discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but really I'm aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If that's you, grab a few friends and work your way through the Word Diet. If that's not you, I'll bet you have a few friends who are in that position, so why don't you grab them and work through the Word Diet. More information is available about thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the book of Exodus, a terrific book. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. We're in the middle of a three-week series on the tabernacle. In the first week, we did an introduction and overview. Last week, we did the amazing donations of the Israelites, and I noted how we give the Israelites a hard time if they were really good at giving. And we also covered all of the furnishings in the tabernacle. This week, we'll wrap up the tabernacle and then cover the two chapters in the middle, chapters 28 and 29, on the priests, the first chapter on their clothing, and the second, the offerings and actions that need to be taken to consecrate them and the tabernacle to God's service. Lord, be with us as we go through this often overlooked chunk of scripture. We pray your blessings on our time together. We pray that we would learn more about you, what you want from us and for us in the days to come. In the name of Jesus, amen. Please pray for the Pure Radio Network, the station and the show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. Last week we finished the furnishings in the temple, but I skipped over a passage. I need to go back and get that now. It's Exodus 30, verses 11 through 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, When you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he is counted. Then no plague will come on them when you number them. Each one who crosses over to those already counted is to give a half shekel according to the sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 geras. This half shekel is an offering to the Lord. All who cross over, those 20 years old or more, are to give an offering to the Lord. The rich are not to give more than a half shekel, and the poor are not to give less when you make the offering to the Lord to atone for your lives. Receive the atonement money from the Israelites and use it for the service of the tent of meeting. It will be a memorial for the Israelites before the Lord, making atonement for your lives. So this passage has two primary pieces to it. The first is the census of men. Uh, the word he is used. We are talking men at this point. Verse 14, 20 years or older. So it's a religious census, but it is accounting for those of the age of military service. Numbers 1 verse 3 will provide a military census soon afterwards with the same results. And probably the most famous census in the Bible is in Luke 2 preceding the birth of Jesus. Here it's commanded by God, later it's prohibited by God, and it's understood as a dangerous thing to do without divine sanction. Census would be a frequent prelude to painful and troubling war. It implies a lack of trust in God's protection, and it objectifies those who are being counted, reducing them to a mere number. In the last episode, we talked about Cass's point that all of this seems to be pointing at both the common people and the elite that the sacrifices are meant to channel the passions of the people, 
but that the process is meant to also keep an eye on the potential errors of the elite. And he runs with that idea here. He says, sacrifices are allowed, but only under the rule of reason and reckoning. But rationality, especially quantifying rationality, carries its own dangers. It abstracts from everything non-quantifiable or beyond counting. It reduces richly complicated subjects to their measurable aspects. It homogenizes the world in the service of managing it better. Counting your troops and taking pride in the sum allow you to overlook the profound truth that unique individual lives are on the line, lives whose disappearance will later be reckoned only as a dip in the census. In the Bible, we see this most famously with David's temptation to number rather than to love in his census in 2 Samuel 24. And there's also a brief reference to this that's worth looking up in 2 Samuel 11.25. As an economist and a public policy analyst, of course, I find this a really interesting point. It connects to a concern in Austrian economics about the limits of empiricism and the tendency of government agents in particular to number things and imagine they control things that they really don't. We see the same things in terms of ministry, ministry and discipleship, that there's a tendency to count bucks, buildings, baptisms, and bodies rather than putting sufficient energy into the messy business of discipleship. The ministry of Jesus is built on the 12. That's where he spent the bulk of his efforts. And instead, we like to spend our time with the crowds and with individuals. Both are called for, but the emphasis should be on discipleship and the 12. The census is connected to the second topic in this passage, the tax. Verse 12, it must be paid to the Lord for a ransom for his life. We saw this redemption principle introduced back in chapter 13, verses 11 through 15. Here it's that no plague will come on them. It's plural. So it could refer to multiple people breaking this or could refer to a corporate punishment if individuals are allowed to slack. Verses 13 and 14, this is voluntary-ish. All who cross over or all who pass among them, but it's under the threat, of course, of punishment. So this is in contrast to the purely voluntary thing that got our praise back in chapter 25 and following when their voluntary, purely voluntary contributions were quite amazing. Although most censuses are military, this one is to align with the temple. As Matyer puts it, in essence, this is a spiritual, not a social or military matter. It was not decided solely by Israelite birth. The question was not, are you an Israelite, but are you redeemed? The payment in verse 13 is a half of a silver shekel. Cass observes this implies that each person's gift is by definition partial, and that mutual interdependence in relation to God and to each other is the founding truth of Israel as a political community. It also specifies a weight according to the sanctuary shekel, which implies concerns about dishonest scales and inflation. After the exile, this would be brought back in Nehemiah 10, verse 32, as one-third of a shekel, and it's the precursor to the temple tax in Matthew 17 that, ironically, Christ pays. Verse 15 identifies this as what's called a head tax, that it's independent of wealth, and it's symbolic of payment for sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the Life Application Bible notes there's no way the rich can buy off God and no way that the poor can avoid paying. Matthew Henry says in other offerings, men were to give according to their ability, but this, which was the ransom of the soul, must be alike for all. And then beyond the religious, this also serves to improve robust community. And this is true for any political, religious, 
or social communal aspects of any group, everyone's got to participate. Matthew Henry says rich and poor alike contributed to the maintenance of the temple service because both were to have a like interest in it and benefit by it. So now we've finished everything in chapter 30. Let's move to chapter 31. The section 1 through 11 is the head craftsmen Bezalel and Holiab. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I've chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I've filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, ability, and knowledge in all kinds of crafts, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of craftsmanship. Moreover, I have appointed Aholiab, son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, to help him. Also, I have given skill to all the craftsmen to make everything I have commanded you. Verses 7 through 11 gives a list of things to do, and the passage ends with the required precision, just as God commanded. Alec Motyer says, It is not enough for the willing-hearted to follow the whims and fancies of their hearts. Doing the Lord's work means doing the Lord's will. So if you think about the passage as a whole, chapters 25 through 31 begins and now ends with the responsibility of God's redeemed people. As I like to say, God's provision and our participation. Mayer says, The Lord, for his part, was willing and ready to dwell in the midst of his people, but it was for them to decide if they wanted him to do so. If they did want him, then they had to fulfill the conditions he laid down. They had a means of grace at their disposal, and it was up to them to use it. It is the same for us. We can either engage or neglect these things, which make 1 Corinthians 3.16 a reality corporately and 1 Corinthians 6.19 a reality individually. Here's the other kicker. In verse 1, we said, Then the Lord said to Moses, and I mentioned last week this occurs seven times. This is the sixth. And we talked about the parallels to creation. Well, what happened on the sixth day of creation? God created man in his image, in his creator image, to do creative things. And that's what we're going to be talking about in the sixth day, so to speak, of this passage in Exodus 25 to 31. In verse 2, we're introduced to Bezalel. His name means in the shadow or protection of God. He's the son of Hur, which is the hand-holding man that helps Moses in the Amalekite battle. He's from the tribe of Judah, which is an oft-honored tribe by Mother Leah. Solomon also comes out of this tribe. And, of course, he's important for building the temple. Verse 3, he was filled with the Spirit of God. And this is repeated in chapter 35, verse 1 in the parallel passage, with skill, ability, and knowledge And he's empowered by God for non-priestly ministry as well. It's not just the priests who are empowered by God. The Hebrew here is Ruach Elohim. It's the same phrase as used about the Spirit in creation in Genesis 1 and 2. This is also the first time that a person is said to be filled with the Spirit. G. Campbell Morgan says, Thus a man was made the instrument of divine action. To do his work, the Spirit of God needed a man. To do this work, the man needed the Spirit of God. Then in verse 3, it mentions all kinds of crafts, which are then listed in verses 4 and 5. Meyer says it is not only for what we might classify as spiritual work that the Holy Spirit comes to equip us. And here, that's the craftsmen of verse 4, the woodcarvers of verse 5. And then eventually that points to, in verses 8 through 11, carpenters, weavers, smiths, embroiderers, tailors, and chemists. In verse 6, we're introduced to Aholiab. His name means the Father is my tabernacle. And he's to help Bezalel. And as we see elsewhere in Scripture, two are greater than one, Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12, where two or more are gathered in his name. God will be there, Matthew 18, 20. Christ sends out the disciples in pairs, Luke 10, 1. And we have the two witnesses of Revelation 11. Now, Holiab is from Dan, which is a much less honorable tribe, 
by Mother Bilhah, who is the maidservant of Rachel. Matthew Henry observes about this combination, God gives honor to that part which lacked it. His origins are not impressive, but it doesn't matter. God chooses. Origins don't matter. God prefers excellence over pedigree. And that leads to two other verbs. Verse 2 says that they are chosen by God. Verse 6, that they are appointed by God. This is not a majority vote. This is not Moses' choice. Matthew Henry says God nominates the persons that were to be employed, that there might be neither competition nor envy. And the end of verse 6 mentions skill to all the craftsmen. Where do these come from? Well, in part, they're building on what they had learned, ironically, in Egypt. Chapter 35, verses 25 and 26 mention that the women were already skilled, but organized by these two. And in chapter 35, verse 34, they're given the ability to teach others. So it's knowing it is one thing and teaching is another, and Bezalel and Aholiab have both. Matthew Henry says, those whom God calls to any service, he will either find or make fit for it. If God gives the commission, he will in some measure give the qualifications. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above. Ephesians 2.22, in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And that's what's happening here. And then there's a role for the local church in all of this from a New Testament perspective. Ephesians 4.11 and 12, so Christ himself gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. That's the job of the leaders of the church in a nutshell, to equip his people for works of service. Now, it's a small thing, but notice that Moses doesn't have any of these skills, but of course, he has a lot of other work to do. Matthew Henry says he was well acquainted with the words of God and the visions of the Almighty, but he knew not how to engrave or embroider. And Moses will be putting it all together in Exodus 40. His skills are not creative as much as administrative and charismatic. Now, the parallel passage is also worth a look. Chapter 35, verse 30 through chapter 36, verse 2 The middle of that passage are the God-given tasks and God-given skills in verses 32 through 35, and that's bracketed on the one side by God's election of them in verse 30 and the Spirit of God to empower them in verse 31. On the other side of the bracket is the Word of God to obey in verse 1, and this is what enables them in verse 2 to become skilled ones in kingdom terms. As Matyer puts it in combining all three, the grace of God and the enabling of the Spirit must flow along the channel of the Word. Again, this is God's provision and their participation. Cass calls it artistic genius under divine direction. A few broad comments to close this out. All of this is in marked contrast to how Pharaoh got things built. All of this is in contrast to what the body was not supposed to do, as was the focus of much of the law. My friend Ron Barnes says, it's not just the life of the mind, but the work of your hands. In Genesis 1 and 2, it's not just what we think, but it's what we do. And that's being channeled here in this wonderful way. And all of this is functional, but it's also artistic, beautiful, and it's a matter of aesthetics for God. And this points to the use of art rather than just simply study, worship, service, and the like in order to find God. I've been struck by this in the book of Revelation, how often poets and artists find God through the amazing work that is Revelation. Finally, a quote from Stephen Guthrie. Bezalel appears at one of the crucial moments of the Old Testament story. The book of Exodus recounts the defining event of Israel's history, but the climax of the Exodus story is not Israel's escape. God has brought this people out of slavery that I might dwell among them. 
The movement of the book of Exodus is from slavery to worship, and the culmination of the Exodus story is the creation of a place where God's people will gather in his presence. Let's take our first break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're finishing up our series on the tabernacle this week. In the first segment, we covered the atonement tax and the census in chapter 30, and then the spirit-filled craftsman in chapter 31. That takes us to the second half of chapter 31, which is the Sabbath in chapter 31, verses 12 through 17. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, You must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come, so you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. Observe the Sabbath, because it is holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it must be put to death. Whoever does any work on that day must be cut off from his people. For six days work is to be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day must be put to death. The Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for the generations to come as a lasting covenant. It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he abstained from work and rested. Verse 18 wraps up this section, all of chapters 25 through 31, with, When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the testimony, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. And so verse 18 finally wraps up what God had explicitly promised way back in chapter 24, verse 12, on the only thing that Moses really had expected in this long visit that had gone on for seven chapters. Now, we covered the fourth commandment, the Sabbath, in great detail a few weeks ago in our series on the Ten Commandments. It's worth repeating at this point, though, this this is the only commandment not repeated for New Testament believers in the ministry of Jesus. And the most important verse, I'd say, about the Sabbath in the New Testament is when Jesus says in Mark 2.27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So we want to keep that in mind, uh, that it can be misconstrued as it was by Israel and how to apply it. But Sabbath is ultimately made for us, and so we shouldn't be blowing it off. There are broad inferences and applications for us on Sabbath principles that we should be trying to observe. The Sabbath is for us after all. Or more broadly, we know that we cannot work for God until we have first rested in him. And the book of Ephesians is great on this. The three key verbs there are to sit, walk, and stand. You can't walk, at least effectively, until you first sat in the grace of God. Here in Exodus, we're moving from sacred space, the tabernacle, back to sacred time. And God is reminding them that they need both. And as with creation, which is referred to here explicitly, work is perfected and completed by rest. They are to make the Sabbath as they make the tabernacle. It's the same verb here. Now, something that's very cool, in chapters 25 through 31, we've already mentioned that this is broken into seven literary units, each starting with, the Lord said to Moses. And guess what? This is the seventh. The sixth segment was earlier in chapter 31 with man, spirit-filled man, engaged in creative activity. And what do we find in the seventh segment? Again, the Sabbath. So the parallels with creation here are just tremendous. When we get to the end of Exodus, as Moses is putting up the tabernacle, again, we'll see the same parallels in the language of Genesis 1 and 2. And so clearly, God wants us and them to see the parallels between his work and our work in the tabernacle and beyond. 
Likewise, it's interesting that the tabernacle was first put up on New Year's Day on the Jewish calendar, and Sarna observes that this is a powerful symbol of the beginning of the creation of the world, the transformation of chaos into cosmos. Now, this is the fourth time that God has talked about Sabbath already in Exodus, the manna instructions in Exodus 16, the fourth commandment in Exodus 20, the sabbatical year in chapter 23, verse 12. But now it's institutionalizing it within the context of a massive building project for God. In the context of this passage, there's a concern about putting too much emphasis on the task itself and perhaps misplacing priorities in regard to the Sabbath. Meyer says their work may be exceedingly holy, but the Sabbath is holier still. Exceptional duties do not permit exceptions to the keeping of the Sabbath. The uniqueness and holiness of their task did not allow them to sit loose to the law of God. As ever, God's work must be done God's way. And this can be applied to all of us, but maybe especially to professional ministers who end up working on the Sabbath, or at least Sunday. And so they've got to figure out how to observe the Sabbath, given that their busiest day is the traditional Sabbath. Cass takes this back to Pharaoh and politics in the new nation. He observes, your work for me does not take precedence over my prescribed rest for you. Serving God is nothing like serving the self-serving Pharaoh. Cass continues, the point is not only personal, but also very much political. The Egyptian alternative is once again, along with Babel, the implicit target, in danger of lapsing into the slavish mentality of men or into the mentality of masters who, through their creativity and their control, imagine themselves to rival the gods. The Sabbath teaches that human beings are neither slaves nor masters, but children of the Lord." In the parallel passage, in the, at the end of Exodus, we've already seen the excitement and giving that the people of Israel have, and it's presumably correlated with an excitement to complete the task. Again, that needs to be tempered with a reminder of the fourth commandment. Cass says here, lest they become too eager to throw themselves into the project, they're put on notice. At the risk of their lives, they must keep the Sabbath. More important than building their beautiful sacred space for the Lord is their internal devotion to his sacred time, now theirs as well. For both of these passages, there's an overemphasis on the task, which inevitably leads to a focus on our position within the task. And so you can see how the priorities get screwed up pretty easily. That's what we see, I think, as well in the text, that there's an explicit connection to keeping my Sabbaths and having reverence for my sanctuary. And this combination we see in Leviticus 19.30 and 26.2. It's got to be focused on God. If we keep working, 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 the focus inevitably turns to us. Now, this is not just a day of rest, but as verses 13 and 17 put it, it's a sign of their covenant with God. And this points to the seriousness of violations against it, which are talked about in verses 14 and 15, including being cut off and put to death, banishment and execution. Numbers 15, 32 through 36 is an example that God means what he says. But seriously, death? Really? So this points to what's at stake, what must be at stake. Again, there's the covenant with God. That's pretty serious. I think we can also imagine the slippery slope and the dangers of self-sufficiency. And this is not ultimately about deterrence, but also justice, that failing to observe the Sabbath connects to failing to observe human dignity, as in other examples of capital punishment, murder, kidnapping, failing to honor father and mother, sorcery, bestiality, and so on. And ultimately, blowing off the Sabbath is a kick in the pants to God. 
Cass says, to willfully violate the Sabbath means to reject that covenantal connection. It attacks the head and source not only of life and the creation, but also rejects Israel's special calling and purpose in the world. It's a renunciation of the covenant and, in effect, a betrayal of a marriage. But keep in mind, within all this negativity and sanction, I think the key word here is verse 16, celebrate. It's something that they should celebrate. It's something that's awesome. Verses 14, 15, and 17, you don't have to work. That's the overarching thing here. And again, it takes us back to Mark 2.27. The Sabbath is made for us, not man for the Sabbath. Now, the parallel passage for this is in chapter 35, verses 1 through 3, and it's opening for the last section of Exodus. So that's also interesting. It wraps up the first section, and it begins the second section. There are a few differences there. Verse 1, the section opens with Moses addressing them as a congregation. And then verse 3 adds private and domestic activity to the injunctions in chapter 31 about public work. Most important, though, it's an inclusio for the golden calf incident. In other words, it brackets the golden calf incident of chapters 32 through 34. And two quotes here to close this discussion out. Matyer says, The Lord returned to what he commanded in 31, 12 through 18. The sin of the golden calf was hugely important in Israel's spiritual life and development, but it was not even a hiccup in the Lord's purposes. He picked up again at the point reached before the incident of the calf, as if to say, as I was saying when I was so rudely interrupted. In other words, even Israel's tremendous sin is not going to get in the way of God's purposes. And Cass observes it is especially fitting under the present circumstances. The people just demonstrated their love of visible objects and glittering surfaces. They rush toward beauty and evident grandeur. They want a material object for their God. Like most of the world, they think material objects give meaning to the moment, and they do not understand that it is the moment that gives meaning to the things. It is not only their zeal for work that needs to be moderated, but also their preference for the things of the world over the ordering of their souls. Zeal and hard work, even for the things of God, can be damaging and destructing, and so the Sabbath principle must hold first priority. Now we're going to jump toward the end of the second account and get to chapter 38, verses 21 through 31. That's a passage we're not going to read. It gives totals and summarizes some of the effort. A couple of things, if you're looking at the passage, verse 21, it's commanded by Moses to do this accounting. This is for transparency, accountability, and to avoid accusations. There's also a mention in verse 21 of Ithamar, that's Aaron's fourth son, who is in charge of the project. In verse 22, there's another tribute to Bezalel and Oholiab. And then verse 26 has the census of 600,000 plus men who are 20 years or older. Starting in verse 32 of chapter 39, running up to 40, 33, they set up the tabernacle. The first chunk is a summary of the things that are made. But I want to read a few verses starting with 39, 42. The Israelites had done all the work just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses inspected the work and saw that they had done it just as the Lord had commanded. So Moses blessed them. And the Lord said to Moses, set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting on the first day of the first month, place the ark of the testimony in it. Verse 42 has, as the Lord commanded Moses, that phrase appears 25 times in Exodus 35 through 40, 18 times just in these last two chapters. His and their obedience is obviously a key theme. Cass observes here that Moses' attempt to connect the people to God through obedience has, in this instance, succeeded. Of course, for us, it's obedience in the little things that lead to effective ministry, and that's true for Moses and the people as well. In verse 42, there's a delegation of tasks and then precise obedience by the Israelites. Verse 43, Moses inspected 
and blessed. And so we have follow-up and praise and encouragement. Even when they were doing just what was expected and they were excited to do, Moses still blesses them for that. In chapter 40, verse 2, it's set up on the first day of the first month, so it's almost a year after the Passover, which was on the 14th day of the first month, celebrating in the same month. In total, they'd gotten to Sinai three months after the Exodus, so eight and a half months at Sinai, including 80 days on the mountain, and then less than six months for tabernacle construction. It's done well, it's done quickly, it's done through unity of purpose, a diversity of gifts, and the empowerment of the Spirit. I'll leave the rest of chapter 40 to you. Verses 3 through 15 is 13 imperatives to Moses. And then verse 16, again, underlines his obedience. 12 through 15 is all directed at Aaron and his sons. Cass notes that this underscores the permanence of the priesthood while silently reaffirming the passing importance of Moses, who has no relevant descendants. He is to usher in his brotherly alternative. We'll save the last five verses for our wrap-up on Exodus, but verses 17 through 33 continues this account with a list of seven aspects of obedience, again continuing the echoes of the creation account here as well and the use of sevens. Remember that Moses was summoned to the cloud on the seventh day. Remember that we had repeated patterns of seven within the instructions. The Sabbath references are repeated. The Holy Spirit is active at creation in Genesis 1-2, and here he indwells a human for the first time, Bezalel in Exodus 31-3. And just the language at the end of 39 and 40, finished work, report, blessed, and it was good. It's all indicative of God's new creation and renewed presence after Genesis 1 and 2 and this new work of the tabernacle. All right, let's take our second break here. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Podcast of previous episodes are available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google. Questions and comments are always welcome on my Facebook. Welcome back to The Word Diet. Today we're wrapping up our three-week series on the tabernacle. In the first two segments, we finished up the tabernacle and its furnishings, and all that remains is the two chapters in the middle of all of this, chapters 28 and 29, on the priests. So coming into chapter 28, we know that God will dwell among his people, but how can he be approached? It would not continue regularly, at least, through Moses as mediator, perhaps to his surprise, disappointment, relief, or delight. That theme is introduced in detail here, and it's elaborated further as Exodus continues into Leviticus. Chapters 28 and 29 is the central part of this section, and therefore the most important part, and that's easily lost with all of the other detail. Of course, we're also called to be God's priest and his kingdom, and we have the same responsibilities as these priests in another form. But for them, a priest is not a new office, but distilled into one family and codified further into what would become a dominant social, religious, and sometimes political role as what Cass calls God's prime ministers. So chapter 28 is the priestly garments. That's what we're going to cover in this segment. Matyer notes that in the Bible, clothing is often used as a symbol to express outwardly what the wearer is or ought to be inwardly. And we'll see that here. Cass observes that the priest's garments do more than cover them. They will bring glory and splendor to the wearers and by reflection to the Lord they serve. The garments honor the wearer and display his commitment to a purpose higher than himself, but they're not merely plush and pleasing. They will carry signs and symbols of Israel's national history and spiritual purpose. But all of this has a downside as well. Cass goes on to note that there is risk in all this splendor. One can get carried away and forget whose gift one carries, or whom one is meant to serve as the trappings of office become ends in themselves. External beauty invites both pride, 
idolatry, envy, and resentment. Cass continues by noting that the Hebrew term kathoneth, which is one of the pieces of uh, garment here that's described, is only used three times in the Bible. Genesis 3.21, when God uses those to cover Adam and Eve, the plain linen coat for the high priest here, and the next most famous piece of clothing in Genesis, if not the Old Testament in the Bible, Joseph's coat of many colors, which in a sense, the coat with pride, envy, and resentment that had landed Israel in Egypt to begin with. We won't read much together here in chapter 28, but I do want to pick up the introduction, verses 1 through 5. Have Aaron your brother brought to you from among the Israelites, along with his sons Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, so they may serve me as priests. Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honor. Tell all the skilled men to whom I have given wisdom in such matters that they are to make garments for Aaron for his consecration so that he may serve as priest. These are the garments they are to make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. They are to make these sacred garments for your brother Aaron and his sons, so they may serve me as priests. Have them use gold and blue, purple and scarlet yarn, and fine linen. There are some interesting details here, especially if you watch the names carefully. Who are the garments made for? Well, the priest. Aaron to begin with, who's named seven times from chapter 27, verse 20 to chapter 28, verse 4, and his four sons. Who's not mentioned here is Moses. The wording in verses 1 and 3 is, and you, you. So it's referring to Moses, speaking to Moses, but not using his name. And Aaron is also ID'd three times as Moses's brother. And so the clear message seems to be that the emphasis here for the priesthood and for the leadership of Israel is for Aaron and his sons, not Moses, going forward. Verses 2 and 4, another distinction that's sort of interesting, the sacred garments that are for Aaron, mentioned in verses 2 and 4, and the sons, who are only mentioned in verse 4. So the sons receive garments, but not all the same as Aaron, who would serve as the high priest. We see the same thing in chapter 39, verse 1, in the parallel account, where it discusses woven garments for ministering in the sanctuary, versus the sacred garments for Aaron as high priest. Verse 4 also gives a list of seven garments, which we'll talk about as we go. Six of them are woven, and then there's a simple undergarment. Now, how are they to be made? That's verse 3, by skillful men to whom I've given wisdom in such manners. So we're back to the picture of gifting from God, God's provision and our participation, which we have discussed recently in chapters 31 and then the parallel account between chapters 35 and 36. And then the material in verse 5 should be reminiscent. That's what was used for the tabernacle curtains. So it identifies the priest directly with the tabernacle and its service and mission. Now, what's the why of all this? Well, the text gives a number of reasons for this as well. Verse 1, it's from among the Israelites. That's an interesting phrase you might imagine we could do without. But it indicates that Aaron and his sons are closer to the people than Moses and thus able to mediate, be a bridge as a priest is supposed to be, and to serve on their behalf. Verses 1 and 4 uses similar language. They may serve God as priests and, of course, serve others as well. The priests would burn incense and offer sacrifices. They would maintain the lampstand and the bread in the holy place. They would bless the people and preside over civil cases. They encourage in times of war. They read and teach the law and they defend the integrity of worship and tabernacle, and so on. So these priests are meant to serve and oversee this newfound structured worship of God. Until now, 
such as we had priests, it was the husbands who operated as priests of the household at Passover. Moses, of course, has served as a sort of priest as well, but of course he's busy enough as a prophet and a judge and a leader. Exodus 19.6 says there to be a kingdom of priests. So here we're talking about maybe a capital P sort of priest rather than the layman who's to be a lowercase, but it's still important sort of priest as well. Verses 2 and 3 give the last wise here to give Aaron dignity and honor. And verse 3 for Aaron's consecration. So this is so the priests may be reminded of the dignity of their office and that the people would respect them and revere God more. Verses 6 through 14 lay out the details of the ephod. The most interesting thing here is in verses 9 through 14, the two onyx stones that have the 12 names of the tribes on them, and those are attached to the ephod's shoulders. In other words, the high priest represents all of them. So we have unity, and in verse 12, it says it's a memorial before the Lord. They could not enter, but Aaron could for them. The picture here is also of a burden on his shoulders before God. We think of Jesus in Isaiah 9, 6, the government will be on his shoulders. And as Cass puts it, he carries them symbolically, supporting their weight on his shoulders and holding them close to his heart. Verses 15 through 21 is the breast piece made of yarn and linen again. It's a folded square, a pocket of sorts. And verses 17 through 21, again, we have four rows of three precious stones this time, again, representing the 12 tribes each one with a name engraved on it. Matthew Henry observes, however small and poor the tribe was, it was a precious stone in the breastplate of the high priest. Thus all the saints are dear to Christ. Verses 22 through 28 describe the attachment of the breastpiece to the ephod. Let's read verses 29 and 30. Whenever Aaron enters the holy place, he will bear the names of the sons of Israel over his heart on the breastpiece of decision as a continuing memorial before the Lord. Also put the Urim and the Thummim in the breastpiece so they may be over Aaron's heart whenever he enters the presence of the Lord. Thus Aaron will always bear the means of making decisions for the Israelites over his heart before the Lord. Again, the language points to the burden of leadership. They're on his shoulders in verse 12. They're over his heart in verses 29 and 30. Again, the burden, the strength, the love are all conveyed by this language. The end of verse 30 is very interesting here. The means of making decisions before the Lord, specifically by using the Urim and the Thummim. We don't know how this works or what it is even, but it's described, as we've seen other things, as if they already knew what it was. It's some sort of decision-making tool that invokes God to help them make those decisions. We might think of drawing lots in our time. In the scriptures, it's interesting that the use of lots ends with the choosing of the replacement for Judas by the disciples in Acts 126. When you get to Acts 2, that's Pentecost, and the implication is with the Holy Spirit. You don't need lots anymore. The rest of the chapter covers the other priestly garments. For verses 31 through 35, the blue robe. The most interesting feature here are the pomegranates and gold bells in verses 33 and 34. Jewish tradition holds that a rope was attached to the high priest so that if the bells quit tinkling and he had died, they could pull him out. Verse 35 seems to bolster that. Aaron must wear it when he ministers so that he will not die. The bells serve to notify Israel that Aaron was doing his work and symbolically notify God that he was present. Think about going into the presence of a king. You can't do that unannounced. It would be arrogant and worthy of death, and that is symbolized here in Aaron's dealing with God in the service of the tabernacle. Verses 36 to 38 have a plate of pure gold, and that's attached to a turban. It's on Aaron's forehead, so he will bear guilt and iniquity, and they will be acceptable to the Lord. 
The word for iniquity here is really serious, perverse, twisted, and highly consequential. And this refers to their sin, but it also seems to refer to the act of the sacrifice itself, that the sacrifice itself, although a concession, although useful for God, it itself is troubling and needs to bear atonement. In verses 39 and 40, we have the tunic, the turban, and the sash, and some headbands. Verse 40, the tunic here is underwear, not underwear, but underwear, worn under other things. That's that word kathonath that I mentioned before that is a reference to Joseph's coat. So it's not a trivial coat. Uh, It's something that can be quite heavy, but for the priest, something that was worn under other things that were more substantial. Verse 42 talks about linen undergarments. It goes back to chapter 20, verse 26, that when they go up steps, their nakedness will be exposed, and that's unacceptable to God. And this was a serious matter. The beginning of verse 43 says they must wear them whenever they enter the tabernacle so that they will not incur guilt and die. Now, we assume underwear today, but this was only worn by priests at that time. And again, the point of this is to negate any potential connection to Canaanite fertility rites, to separate and be holy. God's worship is going to be different than the pagans around them. Nothing is mentioned about shoes, but they're probably barefoot, and that would harken back to Exodus 3, where Moses is told to take off his shoes. He's standing on holy ground. Verse 41, after they're clothed, then anoint, ordain, and consecrate them. That's the subject of chapter 29, which we'll cover after the break. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org. Spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're finishing our three-week series on the tabernacle. First two segments today, we wrapped up the tabernacle and its furnishings. In the previous segment, we talked about the priest's clothing. And in this final segment, we'll do Exodus 29 with the consecration of the priest. We'll start with the introduction, which runs from verses 1 through 9. And I'm going to read verses 4 through 7. Then bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance to the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Take the garments and dress Aaron with the tunic, the robe of the ephod, the ephod itself, and the breastpiece. Fasten the ephod on him by its skillfully woven waistband. Put the turban on his head and attach the sacred diadem to the turban. Take the anointing oil and anoint him by pouring it on his head. So verses 1 through 3 that we skipped has the offering for this ceremony. The young bull, two rams, a basket of bread, cakes, and wafers. The young bull is to be without defect which prefigures Jesus as the perfect sacrifice. Verse 4 is wash, which is purify, removing any uncleanness. This is the first act, as Matyer puts it, to prefigure the absolute purity of the perfect priest. And here, for the Israelites, note that cleansing precedes robing. Now, it's not blood, since here Aaron is standing in as a type of the pure and sinless Jesus. This is for them in the office of priest rather than them as sinful people. Verses 5 and 6, they put on the priestly garments for Aaron. 8 and 9 does the same for the sons. Along with the washing in verse 4, Matthew Henry says this signifies that it was not sufficient for them to put away the pollutions of sin. They must put on the graces of the Spirit. And then verse 7, the anointing of Aaron with oil poured on his head. This was later done with kings as well. Psalm 45.7 figuratively talks about anointing with the oil of joy. It symbolized special service. But for us, G. Campbell Morgan says, this ritual is done away in Christ because all the things it typifies are realized in and through him. If we are priests unto God, it is because in him we have the anointing of the Spirit. 
And then verse 9 at the end says this is a lasting ordinance that gets this rolling. By the way, all of this is enacted in Leviticus 8 and 9. Okay, that takes us to the sin offering in verses 10 through 14. Bring the bull to the front of the tent of meeting, and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on its head, slaughter it in the Lord's presence at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Take some of the bull's blood and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger, and pour out the rest of it at the base of the altar. Then take all the fat around the inner parts, the covering of the liver, and both kidneys with the fat around them, and burn them on the altar. But burn the bull's flesh and its hide and its offal outside the camp. It is a sin offering." So two big interesting things here. The first is in verse 10, that they're to lay their hands on the bull. And this is to identify, or at least their sin, with the animal, to acknowledge their sin, how they deserve death, and their need for cleansing. This is the transfer of sin, a picture of it, through substitutionary atonement. Of course, this is described in Hebrews and Leviticus 16 as well. Holiness came from God, not from the priestly office. Likewise, how are Jews to be saved under this ordinance? It's not by the sacrifice itself, as Hebrews tells us, the blood of bulls and goats cannot save. It's their understanding of the meaning of the sacrifice and the mercy and the grace of God, rather than the sacrifice itself that saves. Verse 11 is the sacrifice. Verse 12, the blood on the horns and the base of the altar. Verse 13, the burnt fat at the altar And then verse 14 is sort of interesting as well. The burnt meat, skins, and innards or organs are burnt outside the camp, symbolically, again, bearing their sin. The writer of Hebrews plays with this in Hebrews 13, verses 11 and 12. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Also, because all of it is burnt, it's not to be eaten. In other words, it's not to be taken as food for the Lord's quote-unquote body, as the pagans would do. Verses 15 through 18, the first ram is offered as a burnt offering. Verse 15, they lay their hands on the ram, same as before. Verse 16, they sacrifice with the blood sprinkled or dashed on all sides of the altar. Verse 17, it's cut into pieces, they wash the parts. And then verse 18, they burn the entire ram on the altar. As a result, it's a pleasing aroma. Every time I hear that phrase, I think of 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the one an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? As always, a burnt offering symbolizes total dedication. We think of a verse like Romans 12.1 that we present ourselves to Christ as living sacrifices within that sanctification. Now, why are the sacrifices in this order? Well, this is about the zeal of good works in Christian terminology and sanctification, but it comes after the first offering, which is to pay for sin. No service is pleasing to God until the guilt of sin is removed. God won't accept what you do for him until you accept what he's done for you. Matthew Henry says the sin offering must first be offered, and then the burnt offering. For till guilt be removed, no acceptable service can be performed. Or as he puts it elsewhere, this charity must begin at home, though it must not end there. And so for the believer, yes, we're saved, but it should naturally extend to being a blessing to other people. We've received grace, we then extend it to other. After sin has been covered, our unqualified commitment 
and a life of joyful fellowship with the Lord is what should follow. And that's what this burnt offering symbolizes, the zeal of following Christ after our conversion. Verses 19 through 28 is the second ram. We're going to read verses 19 through 21. Take the other ram, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on its head, slaughter it, take some of its blood, and put it on the lobes of the right ears of Aaron and his sons, on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the big toes of their right feet. Then sprinkle blood against the altar on all sides, and take some of the blood on the altar and some of the anointing oil, and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments, and on his sons and their garments. Then he and his sons and their garments will be consecrated." So we're using these big $2 words like ordination and consecration. The distinction is that an ordination is a right to hold office. The larger issue here is consecration, which is dedication to a task. Both of them are occurring and both of them are important, but the focus is on the consecration that they would be priests, but most of all that they would be able to do the actions of service required for this new tabernacle. Verse 19, they lay hands on the ram, again revisited. 20 and 21, we have the consecration. Verse 20 for them, verse 21 for their garments. In verse 20, there's sacrifice, and then blood is put on the right earlobe, thumb, and big toe of Aaron and his sons. First of all, it's on the right. You know, Although I'm left-handed, I understand the cultural reference here that the right is the dominant hand, and so right beats left in the, this sort of symbolism. And then the various symbolism of the body parts is cool. The sensitivity of the earlobe, listening to God, service to others, the thumb and the hand, and then walking with God, the foot, the big toe, the hearing, action, and direction of these three body parts. Matthew Henry puts it this way, that the blood was put upon the extreme parts of the body to signify that all was to be enclosed and taken in for God. As an aside, maybe it's interesting that all three are also related to keeping one's balance. All the blood is to be applied by Moses' finger. So there are references to the finger of God in Luke 11.20, Matthew 12.28, the spirit of God. Matthew Henry says, by the finger of God, the merit of Christ is effectually applied to our souls. The finger, it's a fairly delicate maneuver. We had talked about Exodus 24 where Moses is throwing blood around. This is very delicate in contrast to that. And though Moses is not a priest generally, he is in this moment. Verse 21, there's blood and anointing oil that's sprinkled on them and the garments. Matthew Henry says, we reckon that the blood and oil sprinkled upon garments will spot and stain them. Yet the holy oil and the blood of the sacrifice sprinkled on their garments must be looked upon as the greatest adornment imaginable to them. For they signified the blood of Christ and the graces of the Spirit. And one last thing, that the blood and the oil are put on the altar and the priest. That combination connects the two of them in service. Now, the rest of that second ram passage is verses 20 through to 28, and that's the wave or fellowship offering. And verse 22 describes the fat and the right thigh. Verse 23, the bread involved. Verse 24 is interesting, that you wave them before the Lord as a wave offering. That's where the name comes from. So it's waved in verse 24, and then it's burnt in verse 25. Again, the pleasing aroma to the Lord. In verses 24 and 26, we're told about the wave. It's from the priest to the altar. It's not a left or right sort of wave. It's symbolizing the transaction itself, including their receiving God's grace and a picture of the fellowship between God and them. In verses 26 through 28, the breast is offered, and so we have the breast and the thigh, which symbolize love and action. This follows the sin and the burnt offerings. A fellowship offering follows reconciliation and indicates the passionate pursuit of God 
within sanctification. And here the priests finally get to eat. Verse 26 describes it as their share. Now, verses 29 through 37 is a wrap-up. Verses 29 through 30 is the garments to be passed on to the son who will succeed Aaron as high priest. Verse 30 prescribes that they would be worn for seven days initially. Verses 31 through 34 is about preparation of the meat, that it's to be cooked, eaten by the priest only, and then you burn the remainder three times, it says here, because it is sacred. Of course, there's a practical matter here as well. Matthew Henry notes that it might not be put in any danger of putrefying. That's why you would burn the remainder. There's no refrigerators back then. Verses 35 through 37, one bull per day for seven days is a sin offering, and to purify and consecrate the altar each day. The altar and the sacrifices are built and maintained by sinful hands, so there has to be a sacrifice for that. And you start by purifying the base. Verse 37 ends with whatever touches it. There's a connection there. Notice also that in 35 through 37, you have all four key verbs here, atone, anoint, consecrate, and ordain. Concerning the consecration of a sinless altar, Matthew Henry notes that though this was not a subject capable of sin or having yet been used, could it be said to be polluted with the sins of the people yet since the fall? There can be no sanctification to God without an atonement for sin. So again, the fact that sinful people are doing it requires some atonement right at the beginning. Or as Cass notes, it must atone for the iniquity of animal sacrifice itself and for the violent and chaotic impulses it entails. The seven days stand in for figurative and complete, but it also indicates a period of waiting. Matthew Henry notes that the seven days put a solemnity upon their admission and a distance between this and their former state and oblige them to enter upon their work with a pause, giving them time to consider the weight and seriousness of it. Seven days would also allow a Sabbath to pass, and that's been an important theme. In verses 38 through 41, we have the daily public offering. Verse 38 mentions two one-year-old lambs, a picture of innocence. Verses 40 and 41 mention flour, olive oil, and wine, which cover the Middle Eastern food groups. And verse 41 has the burnt offering and pleasing aroma that we've talked about earlier. Verse 39 mentions that it's to be done in the morning and the evening, which indicates daily dedication. Also symbolizes the continual intercession of Christ for us that our prayer and praise should be offered in gratitude for daily and common grace. Clearly, this is important for individuals, but Cass says, is such discipline of expressing gratitude and assuming moral responsibility not only good for the soul, but also indispensable for any human community, especially one that is called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? This has implications for both the individual and the community. This is also a daily grind with few high points. Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, and Passover would be clear exceptions. And the priests here are called to perseverance and running the marathon. This is a daily grind for them. And finally, it's interesting that the priests are given nothing to say compared to pagan religions. There's no mantras, no incantations, no liturgy. The closing passage, verses 42 through 46, provides what Matyar calls a theology of the tabernacle with a preeminent focus on God saying, I will and I am. For example, verse 43, the tabernacle will be consecrated with God's glory. Verse 44, God would consecrate the tabernacle, the altar, and the priests. Verse 45, then I will dwell among tabernacle with the Israelites and be their God. The action is all God, even though they're participating in it. The key verbs we're familiar with, meet you, speak to you, verse 42, meet with the Israelites, verse 43. And then the big one, 
that we've seen throughout Exodus, verse 46, they will know that I am the Lord their God. He's not a distant, uninterested God. He's not just the God of power that brought them out of Egypt. He's the God that wants a personal relationship with them as he tabernacles with them. Cass says they will not only know him, but they will also know why he did it so that he might forever dwell among them. He wants to be known not only as their deliverer from bondage, but also as an immediate and permanent presence in their lives, not as the God of the Mount Sinai experience or a remote God in heaven, but as a presence in their midst. Thanks be to God that this was initiated at Eden and the tabernacle and fulfilled ultimately through Jesus and the Spirit and ultimately beyond that in heaven. Lord, thank you for that. Amen. Good to be with you today. Previous episodes are available by podcast, and we hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.